if you don't have a knot in the end of the rope, you know, the device keeps you on the rope, but only so long as there is rope. Um, once you run out of rope, you're just a person flying through the air, basically. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero with support from the Community Foundation of Jackson Hole. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support this project and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. If you enjoy listening to The Fine Line, share this podcast with friends and family, especially if they like venturing into the backcountry. When winter comes to the Tetons, most Jackson Hole climbers switch to skiing. But Paul Raquelli loves climbing, especially winter climbing. So he started making regular trips to the reef, a crag on Teton Pass. The reef is lousy for regular climbing, with rock sharp enough to shred your clothing. But for winter climbing, and someone as diehard as Raquelli, it's an oasis. That's why the 31-year-old climber headed to the reef on a rare day off on February 20th, 2018. An experienced climber and full-time mountain guide, Raquelli had been setting routes there for years. On this day, he had just one bolt left to go. And then he ran out of rope. My name's Paul Raquelli. I'm a professional mountain guide. I've been doing it for nine years at this point. IFMGA mountain guide certification. Mostly work for Jackson Hole Mountain Guides these days, but I've worked everywhere from, you know, Denali to Rainier to the Grand Teton to Tucson, Arizona, kind of everywhere in between. Currently reside in Longmont, lived in the Tetons for 10 years. When I was 19 years old, I had a summer job up at Flag Ranch Resort, which is in the north end of the valley, and um, just got into bouldering at Boulder Town. Tried to climb Tiwanot my first summer and got benighted, which is the only time I've ever been benighted, knock on wood. I grew up in Iowa. You know, as a young kid growing up in the Middle West, there's not a lot of climbing around. This place kind of blew my mind and came back every summer after that and then moved here as soon as I graduated. My passion has always been wintertime climbing, ice mix climbing, and I used to just on my days off, I would day trip up to Highlight Canyon in Bozeman. I was living in Victor at the time, and it was three and a half hours one way. So that wasn't realistic for every day off. And uh, I was looking for some place around here where I could just kind of go and practice rock climbing with ice tools. I knew that there was some established rock climbing routes on the reef, and I knew that um, there was a lot of rock up there that also hadn't been climbed or didn't have established routes on it, and so I kind of headed up there and stumbled upon this amazing climbing venue. If you're sitting at the Phillips Bench parking lot and you're looking up towards um, Little Tucks and Unskiable Zone, it's the big piece of rock that's right there, kind of right at treeline, um, just before you get up onto that bench below Little Tucks and Unskiable. It's quite loose, it's quite sharp. The routes that have been established there are sport climbs up the faces on the on the route. A lot of the areas where you can do trad climbing, the rock is just too loose to do that on. And everyone I talked to who's gone up there has just talked about how sharp it is and how they never want to go back. Kind of the box that rock climbers have put wintertime climbers in is, you know, anything that is even remotely enjoyable to climb 
the rock climbers feel like that's theirs. And, and certainly when you're climbing rock with ice tools, it scratches the rock and creates aesthetic blemishes. And also if you've got a small hold and somebody's pulling out with an ice tool, it's a lot of force in one place and it can rip the hold off. So you can destroy a lot of excellent rock climbs with your ice tools. So we really have to look for crags that the rock climbers don't want so that we're not tarnishing a resource that that they enjoy. You know, as a, as a mixed climber, I go up to a crag and I see scratches all over and that tells me where the holds are. But a, a rock climber that's going up there isn't looking for that same experience. So you have to be very diligent about where you're establishing these uh, wintertime climbing routes. Ice occasionally forms on the roots on the reef. Because of the direction that it faces, it gets a lot of sun and so it tends not to last very long. So this is more of a, um, you know, wintertime climbers, they started out with ice because it's certainly the easiest and that's what all the tools were designed for. And then people started figuring out that there was all this ice they couldn't get to because there was some rock in the way. And so they started doing this thing called dry tooling, which was climbing rock with your ice tool. And that's really the kind of crag that the reef is. When you are swinging, you're usually swinging into frozen ground up there. We call it like turf sticks. There's very seldom actual ice on the route. And, and usually when there is, if you swing into it, it fractures and falls off the rock. My name is Philip Box. I've been on search and rescue since 2015. My regular day job is working at St. John's Medical Center as the director of supply chain. So I oversee all the uh, purchasing of uh, medical supplies going in and out of the hospital. I'd heard about the reef, but I've never climbed up there before. Same, I'd heard of it, but didn't um, just actually from getting lost on the pass and skiing under it, or I should say around it. My name is Alex St. Clair. I joined the search and rescue team in the same class as Philip back in 2015. Um, went through the same year of probationary training with the SAR team um, and was welcomed on as an operational member. I uh, also serve as a wilderness emergency medical technician with the SAR team which I really enjoy. Backcountry medicine is a lot of fun. For paid work, I uh, work for Grand Teton National Park Foundation in development and communications. I'd been climbing at the REAP probably like 30 to 50 times before I had my accident. I started in 2014, so I spent four years climbing there, kind of on and off before this happened. It snows a lot in the Tetons. People like skiing. Um, ha climbing snow-covered rock is not fun. I would, I would go with anyone who would go with me, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, most of the time I ended up there, uh, with a, a top rope soloing kit and, uh, it was just the kind of thing I'd do on my day off. And then if I had a partner, I'd go into Teton Canyon or, or go up to Bozeman or climb in some of those areas where there was established climbing. It was a really cold day. I wore my double boots, fleece pants and long underwear. And then I had some puffy shorts that I put on once I got to the top of the route. I'd been developing this four pitch route and I'd climbed the top two pitches of it um, with my friend a couple months prior and then there was this middle pitch, the second pitch, which was going to need to be bolted all with bolts for lead. Uh, I had a, a drill with me, you know, rappelled down the, the top two pitches and I wasn't really sure where to put the anchor at the top of this second pitch um, because it's a little tricky. There's like a tree in the way of the rock and there's a lot of loose hollow flakes. And so you wouldn't want to put the anchor in that. Someday they're just going to come off. And, you know, if you're attached to the anchor when that happens, that wouldn't be good. So I, I had brought an extra long rope and kind of strung it up from the third belay. Single strand, that reached the ground. 
And so my plan was to repel from there, see where the middle point was in the rope, because I had that marked, then repel to the ground, and then climb all the way back up to that anchor while I was climbing, figuring out where the bolts needed to go, get up to the anchor, re-rig the rope for repel, come down and put the bolts in on repel. Um, so I came down, the midpoint was near the anchor. So I figured with, like it was, it was actually past the anchor that I was trying to get to. So I figured with rope stretch, I'd have plenty. And so then I decided, okay, well, I'll be able to wrap, repel from that upper anchor all the way to the um, anchor on the top of the first pitch and bolt the whole line. There is an alternate repel line that I had been using that was kind of offset from where I wanted to put the bolts. So I had never done this repel prior, prior to trying it that day and, and still have yet to complete that repel, to be fair. I got up there, I figured out where I wanted to put the bolts. I went back up to the third pitch anchor, reset my rope for repelling. Um, it was pretty windy at that point and it was cold and I had had a situation before where pulled the rope and it, the wind had kind of taken it and it gotten stuck in all this sharp rock. And I'd had a hard time retrieving it, which kind of was exciting for me, um, being up there alone. I was like, well, if I get stranded on this thing, that wouldn't be good. So I had gone pretty light with my gear and my preference would definitely have been to saddlebag the rope, basically put all the coils of the rope and attach it to my harness so that it would feed out well, but also not get blown across the rock and potentially strand me up there because the ends were stuck somewhere. So I didn't have that. So I figured the next best thing would be to throw the ropes down to kind of this intermediate ledge. Don't put any knots in the end in case it got pulled off to the side. And then when I got to the ledge, put the knots in the end, throw it again, put the bolts in and then rappel down. And, and it's fairly common. There was a, a famous rock climber a couple days before Thanksgiving, actually on the day before Thanksgiving, who was rappelling down with his partner. And if you don't have a knot in the end of the rope, you know, the device keeps you on the rope, but only so long as there is rope. Um, once you run out of rope, you're just a person flying through the air, basically. And so if you tie a sufficient knot in the end of the rope, the idea is that knot's going to get jammed into your repel device and it'll stop you from repelling off the end of your rope. Without being able to carry the rope with me as I was repelling, the hazard with those knots is that they'll get blown somewhere and then get hung up in a crack or in some other sort of feature on the rock and then become irretrievable. You know, the wind can blow those at a 90 degree angle from where you're repelling from and then you can't swing over and get them. And then you're kind of stuck. It was pretty windy. It was cold. I was I was distracted. I was, you know, I was we had we were having some guests over for dinner that night and I was looking at my watch and thinking like, "Oh, okay, like it's 4. I'll get all these bolts in. I'll be down at the ground at 4:30. Like I'll ski out at 5. I'll have plenty of time to get home and like, you know, help my partner make dinner for everyone." You know, it was going really well. I think I can't remember exactly, but I think I might have um climbed that pitch for the first time without falling. So I was pretty excited and I was planning on coming back the next day and, and leading it. The bolts were going in quickly and, and uh, I got down to that ledge where I had planned on tying the knots in and I just I was just like, well, I actually don't know if I consciously thought about retying the knots in it, but I figured it was going to reach. I threw the ropes off the ledge and, and saw them like go down the face. And then I was kind of thinking about dinner and also thinking about putting all the bolts in and 
rappelling down and, and I didn't have any marker with me. So the way that I had marked where the bolts were going to go is I just would tap in with my ice tool and make a little divot in the rock. And so I had to find those on the way down and then stop, get out my drill, drill the hole, put the bolt in and then kind of rinse and repeat. So I'd put in seven of the eight bolts and was looking for the next divot to put the, the bolts in. And that's when one side of the rope popped through the device. So I had a, a rope end that was still in the device, still attached to the backup knot that I, or the backup hitch that I had used um, so that I could let go of the rope and still be attached to the rappel. So one strand still attached to that. It's running up and through the anchor at the top and then the other strands just kind of free flowing up the face and I'm falling. I fell about six feet, maybe more. I'm, I'm still not sure exactly what I hit first, but I remember hitting something and then kind of starting to like cartwheel backwards and thinking to myself like, okay, that that's it. You know, it, it didn't seem to me that that fall would be survivable at that point. Started screaming hit something again. I think this time it was snow and then started kind of like ragdolling down this little gully, fell over another couple short drops, um, and then ended up on the snow below the face. And as I was kind of sliding to a stop, I don't know, five seconds prior, I was like, well, this is it. And then I'm sliding to a stop on the snow. And, I, and at that point I wasn't feeling any pain. And I, I was kind of thinking of people who have taken famously taken some big falls and walked away from them, like Charlie Fowler famously fell off of uh, the North Chimney on Long's Peak several hundred feet and just walked away from it. And at that point, I was thinking to myself, like, oh, like I might I might just like sit up, go get my skis and ski out of here. Then I kind of slid to a stop. My head was slightly downhill and I tried to like sit up. And at that point, I could tell something was wrong with my pelvis. And I was like, well, I'm definitely not walking out of here. I reached in my pocket for my cell phone. One thing I always do is keep track of where I have cell phone reception and where I don't. Um, and part of my emergency plan with this venue had always been keep my cell phone on me. And that way, if I'm conscious, I can call somebody. So the first thing I did was I texted 911 in case something weird happened with my cell phone. Because I know they like to keep you on the phone for a while. And uh, text went out and then I and then I called right away and let them know where I was and what was happening. and. They kept me on the phone for about 10 minutes, which was hard because at that point I had didn't have my gloves on because <laughs> I had been bolting and, and you, you know, you need dexterity for that. After about 10 minutes of being on the phone, the fingers didn't really work that well. You know, they kept me on the phone as long as they wanted. And then they said I could hang up. I hung up. I called my girlfriend and I said, hey, just so you know, like I took a big fall. At that point, I had figured out that I'd broken my leg. So I told her I broke my leg, but everything was going to be fine. At that point, somebody on a snow machine kind of pulled in underneath the, the reef, turned off their snow machine. And so I'm on the phone with my girlfriend being like, yeah, everything's going to be fine. This guy pulls in, turns off his snow machine. All of a sudden, I'm just like, help, help. I'm over here. Help. Hey, it's going to be fine. I'll call you back. The gentleman on the snow machine, he, he stepped off and he, I remember him being like, is that a person? And I was like, yes, it's a person. I've taken a big fall. I need help. Um, and then he came over and, and started um, taking care of me. You know, he put some gloves on and put a jacket on. And, and fortunately, he had some experiences with helicopters. And so he knew that um, 
you know, he's going to need to clear out a, a place for them to package me and, and stomp out an area down low. And he had some other friends that he called on a radio and, and told him where he was at and what was happening. And they all showed up and, and just um, helped kind of keep me warm and uh, get the scene ready. Um, and it was getting dark and it was kind of cold. And I was nervous that the helicopter wouldn't be able to fly and that I'd have to go out on a snow machine, which would have been a much longer uh, and more involved evacuation. In February, the sun sets around 6.30 p.m., so rescuers had little time to whisk Raquel off the mountain and still get the chopper back to the Teton County Search and Rescue hangar. I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line. You can support this podcast by recommending us to a friend or reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts. I usually get off at about 4.30 p.m., and this call came in if I remember correctly, right before 4.30, right at about, I looked today and I think it said 4.25. I was packaging up for the end of the night, you know, just to go home, cook dinner and go to bed and got the call, showed up to the hangar. One of the first people to get there, a lot of wheels were already in motion, as is typical by the time that the full team is paged to be there. Jess, our SAR supervisor, just said, St. Clair, you're EMT, you're on the ship. Another team member, Casey Best, was there, and he also has some medical training. Um, Casey and I were going to go in, and Tim Siakarlam was going to be pretty much the heli manager. It was a confusing call because it's not every day that people are climbing on the reef. Anytime someone takes that big of a fall, we're really concerned about um, the mechanism of, of injury for the spine. And with him saying that he was concerned about his hip, you can bleed a lot out of your out of your hip. So that was also another really, really big concern. I got the page um, at the hospital. I was trying to wrap up a few things before I could get out of the door and uh, ended up showing up to the hangar a few minutes late. Most of the teams had already been deployed. So the snowmobile team had already departed and uh, started snowmobiling into the scene. And uh, the first helicopter crew um, had also departed. And so I was just kind of waiting around the hangar, uh, waiting for an assignment. And then um, kind of last minute, I was tasked to uh, jump on the short haul team to help fly the patient out. It was a it was a little chaotic scene. Everyone was uh, rushing around because we were so close uh, to dark and the helicopter can't fly um, after dark. And so I was told to grab all my short haul gear, um, get rigged and get ready to go. Um, and I wasn't given a whole lot of information um, about what had taken place. All I knew was I was flying in uh, to bring someone out. So it was myself and Tim, Tim Sia Carlin, um, who was the uh, spotter that day. And uh, was kind of briefed that I was going to be flying into the reef. Um, there was one patient um, who had possible spinal injury, lower leg injury, and then a hip fracture. And uh, that there was teams already on scene. So we flew in. And as we were coming in, um, you know, we can ping a phone. And we pinged his phone and it actually put him around on the other side of a, of a ridge, kind of more towards unskiable. And we didn't see anybody in there. So we knew we were not in the right place. When we finally located Paul... Uh, we looked above, and the snow had been, I, I don't think it had been super reactive, but we, well, we we saw what we suspected was an older fracture. So now, you know, the hair stands up on your on the back of your neck a little bit more. You know, you're possibly dealing with some unstable snow, which luckily didn't turn out to be the case. But we, we flew over, and we looked, and we saw where Sasha, one of the snowmobilers, had, had put a little LZ in these trees, and... Hats off to Nicole, our pilot, on that one. It was not exactly a huge spot, but um, like Paul said, Sasha knew where he knew where to go. He knew the and that was about the only place that we could land. Nicole snuck it in there. Um, 
stomped it down. The rotors were really close to the snow. It was a full belly crawl to get out. And then we just started boot packing up to him. Um, KC got out in front of me and he started putting in the boot pack. Tim grabbed me and realized with the time that we had and, you know, the overall situation that it absolutely had to be a short haul. Um, the time that it would take us to get up to Paul and then get him down to the LZ, the ship wouldn't be able to fly anymore. Um, and like I said, at which point we bring somebody out in a snowmobile and our guys were having a pretty hard time getting to the reef on snowmobiles. Um, it's not a very common spot. The, the snowmobiler that stopped to shut off his sled, um, he said afterwards that he stopped there because he, he got there and thought, wow, I've never been here before. This place is really cool. I'm going to take a picture. You know, Casey booted up to him. Like he said, they already had a bit of a bench dug out for him. So Casey tasked himself with patient packaging. And I did a, I was going to do my patient assessment, which at that point, again, with, with the rapid response that we had to, you know, and the, the time that we had to deal with, it was a pretty quick head to toe. We're not, he, he knew his leg was broken. There's no need for me to take off a boot and find out. Um, we have very, very few moments to do this no visible blood or anything um like i said though i was really concerned about the about the hip and it was really cold we had some some issues just like he like paul said trying to talk on his phone you know you take your gloves off and within minutes your dexterity's gone um so doing an assessment talking on the radio everything became a pretty big challenge uh, my responsibility was just to um, put him in the Bowman bag, which is a large bag the patient is placed in and then secured uh, using uh, straps and carabiners. And then that gets hooked up to the uh, short hauler to be flown out. Um, so I was told the patient was packaged and ready to go. So I thought it was going to be a pretty quick extrication. So we did all of our safety checks um, there at the hangar and then uh, did a quick fly over the scene. But I was um, in a spot I really couldn't see what was going on down there. Um, I could see a couple of our yellow jackets from our SAR team members, and then I could see this big bomb hole in the snow and uh, some other things, but still didn't have a good picture of what was happening. We came back, and we have to kind of finalize configuring the ship before we start doing a short-haul mission. So uh, we flew down uh, to a lower-level area that was flat. Um, Tim Collin and myself jumped out of the helicopter to get the short-haul rope ready to go and hooked up to the belly band of the helicopter. Uh, we did our radio checks, and then uh, the helicopter picked up, and I immediately clipped in and was picked up and flew to the scene. Uh, they had a really good landing zone uh, for me to land on uh, with the equipment and things like that, so uh, got flown in, dropped off, and then uh, once again, we were racing the dark. And when we found out that Philip was going to be coming in, I'm never going to forget when Nicole said on the radio, so Philip landed, and I'd say you were on the ground for five minutes tops. I mean, it was... It was a really fast extraction. Luckily, this is exactly what we train for. You know, I mean, we train like we like we rescue. And I will say for me personally, that was that was the first rescue where it was full on. Like there really isn't any room for error. This has to be perfect. Once Philip finally got down and we had him packaged, um, Philip was finishing up getting one of the last carabiners on the God ring. And Nicole came over the radio and asked me, she said, hey, St. Clair, how much time do you need? And I said, we need probably about five to 10 minutes. And she said, you have two. And Philip heard that. We all heard that. And we knew that it was all right. We literally have two minutes. And yep, she was directly above um, at that point, came in, Philip hooked up and bye-bye. 
I wasn't very gentle with Paul uh, <laughs> and getting him in the Bowman bag. Um, I was telling the team that we had to move very quickly. And uh, so we got the Bowman bag out. Um, we got Paul placed into the bag and then uh, called the helicopter back in for pickup. Uh, helicopter came in, we clipped in and uh, took off pretty quick. Um, it was probably one of the fastest uh, pickups and takeoffs I've, I've remembered in doing training and things like that. Uh, I think I said like, Paul, I'm sorry, this is going to hurt. And yeah. I've moved him very quickly and had to move him into the Bowman bag. I was, um, I was an EMT for a number of years, um, working, uh, running on the ambulance over in the Driggs hospital. So I've, I've dealt with a lot of traumas and things like that. And sometimes you just, you just have to be quick and get it done. Um, it's painful for the patient, but it's, you know, better to get them to definitive medical, medical care instead of, you know, wasting time out there in the field. Plus once again, like we were racing the dark, so we had to move pretty quickly. And it's not your pain. <laughs> It, it was my pain. <laughs> um, it was a really short flight um, back over to Teton Pass to the highway. They had shut down the highway um, for the helicopter to come in. And uh, we had an awaiting ambulance up there and a couple of other team members. And uh, so made our final approach and then uh, landed right in the middle of the um, highway up there on Teton Pass and then uh, unclipped and then uh, very quickly got Paul moved over to the ambulance at the area called Jimmy's Mom, uh, the parking area right yeah. there. He was in really good spirits some um, complaints of pain, but that's, that's going to happen when you fall. I mean, what would you say overall you fell? Probably like a hundred feet or so. I was going to put you to at least 80. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty far. He was, he was with it. So that's really nice. It's, you know, it's, it's great when your patient can talk to you. He wasn't screaming unless like he said, we had to move him. He was extremely cooperative and he knew that we had to do what we had to get done. Hypothermia was definitely a very big concern as well. It's pretty insidious. It's not the kind of thing, unless you jump into a lake, you know, a frozen river or a lake, it's not something that, that happens like that. And we knew that he'd already been on the ground for a little while. And that was probably the biggest observation that I made outside of the pain was you could tell that he was he was getting cold. You know, he was, he was borderline hypothermic, if not already mild hypothermia. And with hypothermia, you're not going anywhere but down unless it's taken care of immediately. The two fellows that were up there that, that came to to Paul's rescue right off the bat. Um, big, big props to them. I honestly, I'm going to say with confidence that we would not have flown him out. It would have been a snowmobile rescue if they hadn't been there to pack down a landing zone. They already started building a bench for us to package him on. Um, everything really lined up well. Sasha, was he the, yep. he was great. I mean, you know, he was like, Hey, everything's going to be fine. We're going to take care of you. You know, he was telling me exactly what he was doing. He seemed to have the situation under control and, and it felt it felt good to have someone who could, you know, that 911 called me back and I was just like, hey, here's my phone. I can't really hold it. Um, and so he he answered the the second 911 call. And, you know, I, I remember the, the helicopter coming down and, and I've been involved in a number of helicopter rescues. So I knew that just because you see the helicopter in the sky doesn't mean that you're on the helicopter. Like nothing's nothing's for sure until you're attached and actually in the air. So I was just trying to be patient and wait. And the thing going through my mind was like, well, this is this is better than crawling out, which would have been my other option if I hadn't had cell phone service or, you know, worse, just just kind of laying there and, and waiting to go to sleep. So in my mind, everything that was happening was a win for me. I knew things were going to hurt and I was fine with that. Uh, I was mostly just happy that that I was still breathing at that point. I was a little bit worried about internal bleeding, um, as Alex mentioned, especially with that hip. There's a lot of a big vasculature that goes through there. Uh, so I was a little bit worried about that. But other than that, I figured, you know, legs heal, 
whatever was going on with my pelvis would heal and I could feel everything. I could wiggle everything except for the, except for my right leg, which was very broken. And I just kind of did my best to, um, be happy and try and crack a few jokes just to keep the mood light. Let these guys know that I was definitely happy for everything they were doing for me and that I felt like I was in good hands. I knew that the helicopter wasn't going to fly after dark. I was surprised that it was flying at all because um, it was kind of a low cloud ceiling that day as well. I definitely did not feel entitled to a ride on a helicopter. I was more than happy that it happened. I was on a uh, Knowles course in the winds in 2013 and we had a significant rockfall incident that resulted in two like non-usable leg injuries for, for two of my students. And we waited for 48 hours for helicopters to get them out. You know, I've seen the helicopter come through the clouds. I've heard it. I've seen it turn around. Um, so I, I, I was kind of used to that game. And this, t this time it was me, <laughs> not somebody else. Essentially where he landed is exactly where we packaged. And right on that, almost that exact spot is where Philip dropped in. I would say everything was contained in a 10 foot by 10 foot area on a relatively steep slope. Yeah, that's the nice thing about Shore Hall is we can get uh, dropped into some pretty tight places on some steep terrain. So that's an advantage of being able to fly in. The bag that they put me in, it kind of restricts your view. And so I could really only see like straight up. And, and honestly, I just kind of closed my eyes and waited for it to be over. You know, it, um, it's not it's not awesome hanging below a helicopter. I, I'm not a huge fan of helicopters. I, I like being inside the helicopter. I hate being outside and around the helicopter. The rotors scare the crap out of me. And, and granted, you know, we were several hundred feet away from those or however far it was. Um, but I just, I knew at that point, it, like I was in the helicopter and I just kind of like breathe a sigh of relief. Like I, I forget the name of the syndrome, but it's like when the, when you're drowning in the ocean, the helicopter comes over you and, and you're treading water for hours waiting for it. And then as soon as it comes, you go under and, and just kind of drown. And that was totally the feeling that I had. I just kind of closed my eyes and you know, figured that I was going to be on the road shortly. Um, and I, there was some snow on my face, which made it hard to breathe, but I think Phil brushed it off at one point. And next thing I knew I was on the ground, got me in the ambulance pretty quick. Um, and that the EMTs or, or the paramedics gave me, um, some like bags with warm water or something in there and, and put those all around me. And, and that was the first time that I felt like I was warming up and, um, that was also the first time that I got some pain management on board and um, that made it a lot nicer. And um, I remember my girlfriend was there uh, when they put me in the ambulance <laughs> and uh, I could kind of, we made eye contact right before they closed the door. As soon as I hung up the phone with her, she figured it wasn't okay. And she drove up the pass and encountered uh, these guys at the top of the pass and her first question was, how much is this going to cost? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, then, then she kind of came down and, and, um, she followed in her car to the hospital. Fractured tibia, fibula, fractured pelvis, fractured rib, uh, and some frostbite, just superficial frostbite. I've had it much worse. I ended up having, um, three surgeries all for the leg. One that night one like two weeks later and then one a year after that it took me probably six months from 
the initial accident until I was able to start climbing again. And then I was able to work all that winter teaching avalanche courses and doing some ski guiding and uh, mostly back to normal. The, uh, the ankle still gets stiff and swollen and I have much less motion, uh, but fortunately there are a lot of other joints in your foot that can kind of compensate for that. Two days before this interview, I went out back to the reef for the first time and uh, and I put the last bolt in on, on that second second pitch, the bolt that took two years, three operations, 22 screws and however, however much else to get in. Climbed without falling and I'm excited to head back. It probably won't be on this trip because um, I'm headed back to Colorado in a couple days, but uh, next time I'm up, I'm excited to head back and, and finish that route, put in, put in the, the last bolt on the second pitch. My friend Boyan, who I've been climbing with for as long as I lived, as long as I lived here, I met him at the old enclosure climbing gym south of town uh, in like 2007 or something. We've been climbing together ever since. Maybe, maybe there's something wrong with me. I, I haven't had, I haven't really had any issues with heights or that kind of thing. I certainly have thoughts of like, you know, now, now I know what it feels like to, to fall that far and to think that you're not going to make it. And, um, certainly on climbs that aren't as well protected, I have to, I have to manage how I think about that. But I also think that it's okay to feel those feelings, um, when it's reasonable to, and, um, you know, I hung out for a little bit and just kind of looked down and, and, you know, now there's a lot less snow up there, so it, it looks even harder to, or it seems even harder to figure out how you could survive falling from where I did. And we actually went back and did a training there after this rescue. And to speak to what Paul said, that rock is extremely sharp. I tore a jacket, someone else on the team tore their pants. It's burly. It's gnarly. I mean, the, the short answer is always close the system. Um, put a knot in the end of your rope, whether you're, you know, top rope climbing or rappelling or lead climbing, whatever the case may be. Um, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me after since this and said, oh yeah, I was lowered off the end of my rope. Oh yeah. I finished a rappel with a foot of rope left and no knots in the end. People need to close the system. And that's kind of the, the short technical piece of it. But I think that more importantly, and more of like a philosophical approach is just don't be rushed. We have a culture that's really into consumption. And it's all about how fast did you do something? You know, what was your time car to car? Were you able to squeeze this in on a weekend? I think it's resulting in people taking shortcuts and you can take shortcuts every once in a while and, and get away with it. And sometimes you take shortcuts and you don't. And so I was certainly of that mindset, you know, like I just need to get this bolt in. I was rushing um, I was distracted. Now when I go out, I, I spend less time looking at the clock and, and more time just trying to be in the environment. You know, I, these days, the best days are the days that I don't wear a watch and just kind of let it happen. Um, I think before this accident, uh, and, and maybe maybe it was a result of guide training where efficiency is always stressed, but it was always like the best Grand Teton Summit day is the one where I'm six hours camp to camp. And, you know, who, who cares how I got there, but I was, you know, I started at six and I'm back at noon and now I get to have coffee and um, I'm trying to change that mindset. I received financial support that helped me pay for my hospital bills from the Keith Breddickmeyer Foundation. And they are a uh, nonprofit that helps pay for surgeries for guides and ski patrollers and, and people who work in the snow who need orthopedic 
surgeries basically to, to continue in their career. And, and without them, I'd, I'd be probably be working at a desk job right now and I wouldn't be up here giving this interview because um, I'd be somewhere down in Colorado slaving away. And, and thanks to them, I'm able to continue my career and it's a really great service that they provide. I can't say enough how beneficial that was and how much I appreciate Teton County Search and Rescue. If it hadn't happened on Teton Pass um, in Teton County, it probably would have had a different outcome. Um, so I really appreciate the work that you all do. Glad to see you walking. Good man. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.